Well, here we are once again continuing our study through this great letter of Paul to the Ephesians. And let's remember that Paul's primary objective in the first part of this letter is to magnify the grace of God, to to show forth how glorious God's grace is. And he's been doing that by by way of contrast. Of course, in the first chapter, he just, he just really spells it out, all, all that God has done for us. But then in the second chapter, he's been doing it by way of contrast. So God's uh, grace is, is seen when we consider the fact that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but now by God's grace, we've been made alive together in Christ. We were formerly the children of wrath, But because of God's grace, we are now uh, his own special people. We are his children. In verse 11, where we come to today in our study, Paul continues this line of thought. Only now he's going to describe it from the collective rather than from the individual standpoint. So the emphasis has been on the, the individual standpoint or coming from the individual standpoint, we, our, our personal salvation, our, our individual salvation. And of course, that's the great message of the new covenant uh, that all of us individually, personally are gonna know God through Christ from the least to the greatest. But there's also this collective aspect that sometimes we fail to realize. We're all part of uh, a family. We're all part of a body. And at this point in Ephesians, Paul is, he's going to start to touch on it, but the further he goes into the epistle, he's going to really develop this idea, this picture of the church being uh, an entirely new community, but even more than a new community, the church being really an entirely new humanity. This is what you are part of. You are part. If you are a believer in Christ today, you are a part of a new humanity. God is recreating the universe and he started with people. We are the first specimens of his new creation, James says. And so Paul's going to begin to develop that by, by looking here at the reconciliation that we've received, not just to God, but how we've been reconciled to one another. And so he says here, therefore remember that you once Gentiles. Now the term Gentile, we read this, we read this word a lot in the New Testament, don't we? Uh, Gentile was originally a reference to the nations outside of Israel. Uh, the Hebrew word is the Hebrew word goyim. And, and the word goyim is translated in the Old Testament generally as nations. Sometimes uh, it might be even translated as heathen. It just meant the, the people who were outside of the covenant. Uh, but, it, but it came to have uh, also the idea, a, a negative idea of, of sinfulness and wickedness. So Paul's writing to people who are technically Gentiles, but they're no longer Gentiles in that that negative sense of their sinfulness. So you were, you were once Gentiles, but now something has taken place. It's almost impossible for us uh, 
in the 21st century AD to think ourselves back to those days when humanity was deeply divided between Jews and Gentiles. You know, when, when we read this today, we, we don't sometimes see the, the full significance of what is being talked about here because we don't have that division today. We don't have that division of, of Jew and Gentile like, like they had in the early days of the church. But to get an idea of how, how radical this division was, let me quote to you from one writer. Looking back at that time, he said, the Jew had an immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentiles, said the Jews, were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations that he had made. It was not even lawful. This is according to all the rabbinic tradition. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need, for that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl or if a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Such contact with a Gentile was the equivalent of death. So this deep-seated contempt the Jews held for the Gentiles, for for those who were not part of the Jewish nation. Now, uh, the feelings were mutual. The uh, The Gentiles had no great love for the Jews either. The, the sad and the tragic thing is that this was never God's intention. God never intended that the Jews would hold the Gentiles in this kind of contempt. They ended up thinking this way because they forgot that they had been chosen by God uh, to, to be his representatives to draw the Gentiles to him. They had been chosen by God to be a light to the Gentiles, but instead of realizing that that was their privilege, they interpreted, they interpreted the privileges that God gave them, they interpreted them as favoritism, and they started, started to think of themselves as better than the Gentiles, as superior to them spiritually, and this attitude of contempt developed there. And so this was the environment that the gospel would go into. And for the Jews, it was hard to, to shake these things that had, that had been so deeply rooted in their culture. And much of the New Testament is addressing these kinds of things. The apostle addresses this over and over again. The very interesting thing is that Paul, of, of all of the Jews, would have had the worst attitude toward the Gentiles having been a Pharisee. The Pharisees didn't only look down upon the Gentiles, they looked down upon everybody. They, they held their own countrymen in contempt uh, because they didn't agree with their particular views on the law and so forth. But, but this is the man who's writing this, and it shows the, the kind of transformation that the gospel does in a per, person's life. Paul was so radically transformed that he is fully, arms wide open, he's embracing the Gentiles. He's glorying in the fact that he's been called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. This was revolutionary. This would have been um, really, really difficult for many Jews at the time. So 
Paul, it's indicated in what he says here, therefore remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision. This was a pejorative term. This was uh, a term of derision. When a, gen, when a Jew would look at a Gentile and refer to him as uncircumcised, that was um, an insult. This is how they looked at the Gentiles. Called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision. And then Paul adds these words, made in the flesh by hands. Made in the flesh by hands. Paul just, in, in a sense here, he just dismisses the whole thing. In the, the epistle to the Galatians, we'll actually cover it this week. Um, Paul makes it clear there that there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For all are one in Christ. All share an equality in Christ. So he, he dismisses it by using this term, made in the flesh by hands. This is just a human invention. Paul says it means absolutely nothing. But he does describe in verse 12 the true condition of the Gentiles at the time. That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's the description. Can you think of a more pathetic description than that? But you know, it's not only the description of the Gentiles back in Paul's day. It's really true of all of those who are outside of Christ today, isn't it? This is the world. This is where people in the world are at today. This is where many of us previously were. I read these words and I, I can identify with these words personally because I remember the time in my life when I was without Christ. I had no real knowledge of Christ. I had no, no hope in a savior. I remember when I was without God. I remember when uh, my life was purposeless and there, there was no meaning and everything was confusing. And I remember the hopelessness that I felt back in those days. So it's not something that is simply relegated back to this point in history. It is the ongoing plight of all of those who are outside of Christ. But back in those days, archaeologists have discovered uh, numbers and numbers of uh, pieces of literature, poetry, inscriptions. <laughs> we got a sound effects going here. Um, inscriptions on tombs and so forth that, that would express the, the emptiness and the hopelessness of the people at the time. Let me just give you two examples. In 500 BC, there's a, a piece that was written by a person named Theogenes, and this is what was written. I will try to have a good time while I am young because I will lie under the earth for a long time, voiceless as a stone, and I shall leave the sunlight that I loved, then I shall see no more. And then he adds at the end, no mortal is happy under the sun. That was 500 years before Christ, 50 years before Jesus came. The Roman 
uh, poet Catalyst wrote these words, the sun can set and rise again, but once our brief light sets, there is one unending night. And these are just small examples of literally thousands of inscriptions that have been found that indicate the same kind of hopelessness, the same sort of emptiness. But like I said, it's not, it's not simply that that was the case back then. A, a while back, a couple of years ago, I think it was, Cheryl and I were staying up in Santa Barbara for a few days and, you know, uh, her dad's family had, had come from there. So her great-grandmother was buried in the Santa Barbara Cemetery there. And so we, she wanted to go find the, the grave and see the plaque that was there. And so we were looking for it. And we ended up looking in the wrong place of cemetery. So we, we spent like a good hour at least just looking at dozens and dozens and dozens of uh, gravestones. And I remember myself even being sort of shocked at the hopelessness that was being expressed in the inscriptions. I found very few, I found very few references to scripture, very few references to hope in Christ. There were some, and and I remember as I was going through and I would finally see one that maybe had a scripture reference on or uh, maybe, uh, you know, the dead in Christ shall rise or something like that. It would almost like I just like, oh yeah, praise the Lord. Oh good, yes. To know that this person had hope. But the vast majority didn't. And this is the state of man by nature without Christ. Aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But... Here's that word, but again. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You see, so here go, here's Paul again. He's making the contrast. This is what you were, but by the grace of God, this is now what has happened. You have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You, you formerly were uh, separated. You were disconnected. But now you've been reconciled. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's God's grace. And then he says in verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, And has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Now, in verse 14, Paul refers to this, the fact that Jesus has, first of all, he is our peace. He's made both one, Jew and Gentile. He's made us now one into a whole new uh, humanity. I'll get to that in a moment. But he's broken down the middle wall of separation. Most commentators believe, and I think it's actually the case, Paul is making a specific reference here to a wall that had been erected during that time at the temple in Jerusalem, a wall that separated the, the court of the Gentiles from the Jewish section of the, of the 
uh, temple. And there was nothing necessarily the matter with having the, the separation, but it was the, the wall of separation that was really indicative of where the hearts of the people were. Because it wasn't simply that they built a wall, but then they placed warning signs all around the wall stating that anyone who would trespass beyond this point, any Gentile that would trespass beyond this point would do so on the pains of death. So this, this is, again, you see that attitude. The Gentiles could only come so far. Now, in these days, really, according to the Jew, if a Gentile wanted to be a, a worshiper of God, you, you actually had to become a proselyte. You had to convert to Judaism. There was no way at least from the standpoint of the Jewish mind, that the Gentiles could ever have any kind of a, a direct access to God as the Jews had. What Paul is telling the world in this passage is that is exactly what God has done. God has opened the door for the Gentiles to come and have a relationship with God, not via Judaism. They don't have to go that, that route any longer. Now they can come directly to him. And these are the things that Paul is talking about here because Christ has abolished the things that, that prevented that from happen, happening. And it's a little bit complex here what Paul is saying, but what he's actually telling us, he's talking about the law and how God's law was the very thing that separated us both from him and it separated the Gentiles from the Jews. Now, the law of God separated us from him. It didn't bring us to him. The, one of the greatest mistaken notions in all of the history of the church is the notion that somehow the law of God brings you to God, that you, you obey God's law and then that's how you get into favor with him. You keep the Ten Commandments and then God accepts you. That's completely contrary to the New Testament. It's completely contrary to the Old Testament as well. It, that's not what the scriptures teach. The scriptures teach that the law was actually the thing that was separating us from God. And it was because of our inability to keep it. And what the law was constantly doing is pointing to our sin. And as God had declared to the prophet Isaiah, my ear's not heavy that I can't hear. My arm's not short that I can't save but your sins have separated you from me. You see, the law pointed out our sin. But then also, the law really had built into it this separation between Jew and Gentile. Like I've already said, the Jews took it to a whole other level that was never intended by God. But God originally built into the law things that would keep the Jewish nation separate from the rest of the nations of the world for their protection, for their benefit. So there were the dietary laws and the hygienic laws, and these things all uh, really mitigated against close association with the Gentiles. But what Paul is telling us is that Christ, he did away with all of this. He took the law out of the way through uh, dying in our place, paying the penalty for our sin, and that reconciles us to God. He fulfilled all of those types and things that the rituals of the law were pointing to. So he removed that barrier between Jew and Gentile. He did all of this 
through his work on the cross. Now, as Paul is writing this, he's explaining it to the Gentiles, but I think he's also, in the back of his mind, explaining it to the Jews because they needed to be reminded of this over and over and over again. You know, it's amazing how we can get certain things so ingrained in our minds that even though God might have done something entirely different or new, we're so programmed to think in a certain way, we just have a hard time embracing that or realizing that. And so Paul keeps bringing this back around over and over and over again, reminding them that this is a whole new thing. The church is a whole new thing. God is doing a a new thing with the church, as I said. And he says here, to make of the two in himself, he's making of the two one new man. Or you can extend that idea out, one new man. Like I said earlier, it's one new humanity. What God is doing with the church is he's creating a whole new humanity. That, to me, is the astounding thing. We're part of a, a whole new creation that God is in the process of bringing into existence. And like I said earlier, the original creation, he uh, started with the material universe and he concluded it. The climactic moment in the, um, the first creation was the creation of man in the image of God. But now in the new creation, it's reversed. God has started with people and he's recreating us in Christ. But this new creation is eventually going to encompass the entire universe. It's going to bring about a new heaven and a new earth. But think about this. You're part of that. That's where it's all headed. Your new birth, your reconciliation with God, your being brought into this new humanity is a part of this bigger picture that will end in God's eternal kingdom being established, and you're going to be part of it. I'm going to be part of it. That's absolutely astounding. It's amazing. It's wonderful. Don't you think so? I I think it's great. I think it's fantastic. Now, I wasn't really needing you to clap, but I'm glad you did, because I want you to be happy about that. That's something to rejoice over. Now, another thing that we need to see here in verse 18. Well, look at verse 17. And he came and he preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. Again, the far off were the Gentiles, the Jews were near. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. This, again, this is revolutionary. The the Gentiles are gonna be brought in now with, and they're gonna have equal access with the Father. You see, This is what the new covenant, this is one of the chief features of the new covenant, that everybody would know God personally, individually. They would no longer need the mediation of a priesthood. They would no longer need the mediation of a sacrificial system that took place under Moses. But now all would know me. This is what it says about the new covenant. God says, in that day, I'm going to make a new covenant with them not like the one that I made with them when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they didn't follow through with that covenant. But I'm going to make a new covenant. I'm going to put my laws in their hearts and in their mind. And no one's going to have to go to his neighbor and say, listen, 
know the Lord or you know, the idea of a mediator. No, all shall know me from the least to the greatest. That's New Testament Christianity. One of the greatest blunders in the history of the church is when the church set up a new spiritual hierarchy. When the church set up a new system that uh, made a distinction between what we commonly call the clergy and the laity. And this is most obviously seen in Roman Catholicism. It's not only or exclusively in Roman Catholicism, but it's most obviously seen in Roman Catholicism. You see, in Roman Catholicism, there's no emphasis on a personal relationship with Christ. Everything has to do with the, the collective. And you're, you're just, you're part of the church. And there's no, there's no encouragement to seek personal fellowship with God. The, the priests are the mediators. And even in the forgiveness of sins, you don't just simply say, God, I ask you to forgive my sins. You go to a priest and you ask the priest to mediate for you. When I was a boy, that's exactly what I did. I went into the confessional. I confessed my sins. And then the priest at the end of my confession absolved me of my sin and told me to go out and say certain things as penance. But this whole system is completely contradictory to what the New Testament teaches because verse 18 tells us that through Christ, we both, Jews and Gentiles, all of us alike, we have access to the Father, full and complete access. We have equal access. The Reformation of the 16th century was basically a rediscovery of these great truths. The three primary themes of the Reformers were these, and they, they used Latin to describe them. The, the first was uh, sola fide which meant uh, faith alone, salvation by grace through faith alone. That, that's what the New Testament teaches. The, the church had long since lost that. The reformers, going back to the Bible, they rediscovered it, and that was their proclamation. No, salvation is not by works, it's by grace through faith. The second of their great themes was a sola scriptura, The Bible is the authority. The word of God is the final authority. We don't recognize the authority of the Pope. We don't recognize the authority of the cardinals and the bishops or the church. We now only recognize the authority of scripture. And then the third was the priesthood of all believers. You see, because the the Roman system had set up uh, this, this priesthood that was very similar to the Old Testament. So they had gone back to what was under the old covenant and completely missed, and still tragically to this very day, miss the New Testament picture. According to the New Testament, every person who believes in Jesus is a priest. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We are his own special people. Those are the, those are the words that the New Testament uses. And just as the priest in the Old Testament was the one to access God on behalf of the people, we now have that direct access. So you see, we all have equal access. Now, to make this even more practical in its application, I want to say this. We often make the mistake, even in our type of setting, we often make the mistake of, 
of somehow thinking that the pastors or the leaders maybe have a little better access to God than I might as the average Christian person. Now, I'm not condemning anybody for that. I'm just saying, listen, understand that that's not the case. Now, if you come to me and ask me to pray for you, I'm happy to pray for you. I love to pray for you. I want to pray for you. But if you come to me and ask me to pray for you because you think I'm closer to God and I can get, I, I can get to him better than you can, I'm not going to pray for you then <laughs> because that's not true. Now, you have equal access to the Father. Of course, I want to pray for you. We want to pray for you. We all want to pray for each other. But whenever we get this mindset that there are certain people who have more access or better access or people who can, are, you know, can be closer to God than I can, we have the wrong idea. The biblical picture is equal access for all. You have as much access to the Father as I do, and I have as much access as anybody else does. And, you know, oftentimes we would use the illustration, of course, Billy Graham was such a, a well-known figure in, in Christian history and, and still is. You know, people would say, well, if, I'd love to have Billy Graham pray for me. His prayers, I'm sure God listens to his prayers much more than he would mine, or that, that was even said often about Pastor Chuck. Oh, I gotta get Pastor Chuck to pray for me. God's gonna really listen to him. This is just the way we think, isn't it? And we need to have our thinking corrected. Biblically, that's, it's inaccurate. That's not right. There is no uh, spiritual hierarchy. We are all on the same level. We're all on the same footing. We all have equal access to the Father Anyone, everyone who is in Christ has the same access to the Father and it's full access. We have full access. Now, although I read through to the 22nd verse, I'm gonna hold off in looking at verses 19 through 22 and we'll look at that in the weeks to come. And I want to sort of conclude things now, but I want to do so by, by leaving you with three things from the text that we've just read over. And the first thing that I want to leave you with is this. Remember that many all around us remember what their true state is. They are without God, without Christ, and without hope. Don't forget that. Now, of course, most people aren't going to let you know that, are they? Most people are putting on a pretty good front. Most people are acting like they've got it all together. It's all cool. It's all good. I'm fine. I don't need anything. I don't need anybody. I don't need any help. Uh, but you know, the reality is much different than that. Before I was a Christian, nobody would have outwardly looked at me and concluded, man, you know, Brent's really messed up. He really needs God. He doesn't have any hope or any of that. I put on a good front. The fact of the matter was, I was dying inside. I was empty. Life was meaningless. I didn't have any hope. And the gospel came, and I responded to it. My point is that that's, people all around us are like this today. So don't be fooled by what you see externally. Know that this is the case. The description in verse 12, this is the reality for people. They are without Christ. They are without God. They are without hope. And we 
have the privilege and the blessing and the responsibility to let them know that they can be brought near through the blood of Christ, just as we have. They can be brought near. They can come to know God. They can come to have this experience with him. And people all around us, the majority of people that we live amongst, that's the condition of their souls truly. So let's not forget that. And let's pray that God will open doors for us. Let's take every opportunity that we can to bring to people the hope that we have in Christ, the, the good news that you can be brought near to God. How near? Well, as near as Jesus is. How near is Jesus to God? He's, he's in the bosom of the Father. We're brought right into that intimacy with God. Secondly, since we are a new man in Christ, since we are part of a new humanity, we need to remember that things are going to be much different or should be much different in the church than they are out in the world. And what is the world like today? Well, it's, it's really very similar to what it was in Paul's day. The world is still divided up racially. The world is divided, divided up uh, through various um, social structures. The, the world has all kinds of current divisions, but the church is a different place. It's a different humanity. It's a new thing. Those kinds of things are not to be part of the church. And one of the greatest blights upon the church in all of its history would be something like racism. Racism and Christianity are mutually exclusive. How could it ever have been? How could it still be today that there are racist overtones among Christians and in churches. How could that be? You have to completely miss the point of the New Testament to have racist ideas. How tragic, how horrific. You see, when a person comes to Christ, all of those things are gone. There's a reconciliation that takes place. If there's a true work of God's spirit in your life, if there's a true work of God's spirit uh, among the congregation, there will not be a hint of racism. There will not be a trace of it. It, it would not be able to, to have a place whatsoever. I seriously, this is something that I don't talk much about it, but in my own heart, this is something that I'm just personally so grieved over it to see what's happened over the, the long history of the church and in uh, you know, the distant history of our nation, but even in some churches today, still, this is the case and it never should be the case. I pray, my prayer, you want to know my desire is I pray that this church would be multicolored, that we would have every ethnicity, every tribe, tongue, and nation. That, that's my heart. When we were in London, we had a church that... Uh, we, we had a church in London. Our church was made up of about 58 different nations. And I loved it. It was just so amazing. And I remember I was being interviewed on a radio uh, program one time in London. And they were asking me, 
uh, because they knew one of, one of the interesting elements of our church in London was the, the large numbers of uh, ethnic people that were there. And they, they asked me this question. They said, so what was your strategy to have a multi-ethnic church? How did you go about this? I, I had no strategy. We're just teaching God's word and loving people and God's, God's bringing the people in and we're accepting everybody he brings through the door. That's that's the way it's supposed to be. So remember that. This is a whole new thing. It's a new humanity. The church is really technically, according to Peter, we are a new nation. Now, we all have our national identities. And national identities are okay as long as we don't take them to an extreme. But our primary identity is in Christ. We're a new nation. That's what the Bible says. That's what the New Testament says. The church is a new nation. God's created a new nation. So although I might be Irish and Scottish by my heritage, um, I'm, I'm first and foremost a Christian. And I, I must guard my heart and I must avoid, you know, you can go to different places in the world where you're going to find, even among Christians, you're going to find nationalistic tensions. You have to watch out for that. You have to be on your guard against that. With the current conflict in the Ukraine, with the Ukrainians and the Russians, uh, some of the brothers and sisters that we know personally in those countries, they're struggling with some of the nationalistic types of feelings. Their own brothers and sisters that they've known and loved in the Lord, but now because of this uh, conflict between the nations, they're, they're having struggles in their heart. Those are real struggles, but we cannot succumb to them. We have to remember there's no place for racism. There's no place for classism. What is classism? It's, it's the setting up of, of the different classes. You have the lower class, the working class, some call it, the middle class, the upper class. And I mean, that's, that's the reality of life, but we can't treat people differently based upon the class. If we do that, we're violating the scriptures. We're contradicting the, the message of the New Testament. So we have to watch out for that kind of thing. There shouldn't be chauvinism among us. And we commonly think of chauvinism in the context of male chauvinism, but the word doesn't really speak to the gender issue. But you have, maybe you could call it sexism or you could have male chauvinism and feminism. They're, they're both the exaltation or the excessive um, emphasis on a particular thing. These things are done away with in Christ. They're, they're done away with in Christ. There should not be the idea of any kind of supremacy of race or supremacy of gender or supremacy. Even, of course, the final one I would warn us against is Phariseeism. Phariseeism is the same kind of thing. It's just a spiritual version of it. So I look down on people. I'm more spiritual than they are or we are more spiritual than they are, or our church is more spiritual than that church, or we Christians in our group, we're more spiritual than those other people. That's Phariseeism. And these things don't have any place in the church of Jesus Christ. And finally, the last point, the personal one here, remember this. Remember, for he himself is our peace. He is our peace. Jesus is our peace. He's the one who made peace for us with the Father. He's the one who brings us peace in our souls. 
He's the one who produces peace among us as God's people. He's the one who brings peace to conflict and division. Jesus is the great reconciler, and he reconciles us through making peace. He is our peace. And so today, realize that he is our peace. It's through him that we have peace with God. It's through him that we will experience the peace of God. And it's through him that we will live in peace with each other. As God's new humanity, as God's new creation, that he will eventually replace the existing material universe with. That's the gospel. That's where it's headed. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us by your grace to be part of this unimaginable thing, really, that you're doing, recreating the universe. How amazing is that, Lord, that you would be doing that and you would make us a part of it. Lord, that you want us, all of us, to be part of that, to live together reconciled with you, reconciled with each other, living in peace and love and joy and fulfillment. Lord, help us to understand and to apply all of these great truths in our lives. Help us to realize, Lord, that we are part of a new man, that we all have a place and a purpose in your kingdom, in your family. Help us, Lord, to enjoy the benefits and the blessings of the reconciliation that you have brought about. Lord, do your work here in our hearts. Do your work among us. Lord, may this place be a house of prayer and worship and study for all nations. Lord, bring as many and as multi-background as you would bring. Lord, our doors are open. We know your heart is open to receive all nations, tribes, tongues, kindreds. So, Lord, here we are. We're open today. We want that for our fellowship. We want to be spreaders of peace and reconciliation, having been recipients of it ourselves. And so, Lord, guide us forward, we pray. And, Lord, I would just pray in closing, if there's anyone here that's, that's yet to be reconciled to you, they're without hope, they're without Christ, they're without you in the world, they're empty, They're frustrated, they're depressed, they're wondering about why they're even here. They think about the future, they have no confidence in anything beyond the grave. They're fearful of the day that they will die. Lord, you answered all of those questions. You are the solution. So open hearts that they might receive your salvation today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.